A Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis. And I'm Cecilia Ramsdale. Welcome to The Wellness Collective, a podcast where we invite you to be part of our wellness community to share, learn and live better. Welcome to another episode of The Wellness Collective. Hello, Nat Kringudis. Hello, Cecilia Ramsdale. How are you? Well, we've actually been spending a bit of time together today already, and this doesn't really happen. We're like, we are here in the studio with our guest, but um, you've just spent two hours with our guest talking Mm -hmm. to a group of women uh, in the room and online. So I feel like I'm overflowing with questions and information already. Is it brain fried? Mm, Almost. We had a couple of people leave today, the event. Yes. And one woman said, my brain is fried. And I said, oh, that's a good thing. That can mean that the things are, you know, it's a catalyst to change. But we can never have too much information and we never stop learning. Well, I think this is exactly the thing that we are going to learn today mm-hmm. is that we've talked about some of these things in various forms throughout the Wellness Collective. But today we're going to bring it all together with someone who really knows their stuff in this particular area. Hi, guys. I'm Lara Bryden. Sydney Natchpath and the author of Period Repair Manual book, all about how to have healthier periods. And I'm so delighted to be here. It is fun to do an interview in person. I know, right? So fun to do it. And yeah. it sounds better. Yeah. <laughs> it just sounds better when we're in person. You, you get to have more jokes Absolutely. too, I think. This is, this is always good. Mm-hmm. Now, Lara, two hours you just spent speaking about periods. Now, I've got to say, I never in my wildest dreams envisaged myself speaking in a public space about periods, ever. Mm-hmm. But then I met Nat Kringudis <laughs> and my life changed entirely. But And now that's all we talk about. No. Well, let's, let's break it down though. Okay, so... Um, Women have been having menstrual cycles for as long as women have been invented. So how long is that? <laughs> Let's say millennia. Right, yes. <laughs> but how can we be in 2019 and still be in a situation where we need someone like you who has heaps of research and works on this on a daily basis to actually enlighten us on what's going on with our bodies? Yeah, there's been a bit of silence off air with regard periods and women's hormones. And I think part of the problem is 60 years of hormonal birth control and how that shut down hormones, shut down periods essentially because pill bleeds are not periods. And so that has just left this big gap in understanding of how women's bodies work. It's why we've been left out of the conversation in nutrition a lot of the time. For example, you know, low-carb diets can be a problem for women because they can shut down ovulation and you'd never really hear about that because no, no one's talking about menstrual cycles as a thing that the human body does. This is one of my big messages is women's health is not a side issue. It's not a niche topic or an add-on. It's not an additional add-on. It's how the basic model of the human body works is on a monthly cycling basis. Wow. How about that? You just made it sound so simple. Well, it is. It's the facts. Well, you've talked about something there about um, carbohydrates in diets being something that affects periods. So let's get into that in a little bit. Sure. But can you give us your take on ovulation as something that just happens in our bodies? Because I think for most of us, when we first start menstruating, we get our period, we're taught that, okay, so now you're at an age where you're childbearing, so this is what this is about. Yeah. It means that this is what you were put here to do is to have babies, so this is why your body is doing this. But you've got a different theory on that, haven't yeah. you? Well, yes, the message, the narrative we're given is that ovulation is to make a baby and until you want a baby or if you don't want a baby, then you don't need ovulation. But I 
dispute that. I think that is wrong because ovulation, yes, it is how we can make a baby if we want to, but it's also how we make the hormones, estrogen and progesterone, that we need to be healthy on a daily basis and also long-term preventative health. And to say to women, you you know, don't need ovulation until you're ready to make a baby would be literally like saying to men, you don't need testosterone until you're ready to make a baby, which of course is crazy. Because we need it for so many other things. But that's such a good way of putting it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because if you think you turned around to some guys and said, okay, great, you've gone through puberty and now you've got all this testosterone, but you don't really need it until maybe you're in your 20s and you start thinking about having a baby. So let's just switch it off, shall we? Yeah. But is it that we're not even saying that? We're not saying you don't need it because we know you do need it. We're actually just saying, we're just going to take that away from you for a bit. Yeah. It's not even that we're saying you don't need it. Because they need it for so many other things is my argument there. So, you know, they need testosterone for muscle mass and Mm. all sorts of other things. I nearly knocked over my water. Um, Just like we need um, estrogen and progesterone for far more than just ovulation, which is your point, you know, without the balance of these hormones, the uh, symptoms are widespread. But that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that, you know, it's it's really common, isn't it, that teenage girls, once they've gone through puberty and they might be having some troubles with their hormones, are prescribed synthetic hormone or contraceptive, go on. Yeah. Well, she wants to change what you're saying. (laughs) I'm going to get a T-shirt that says this, that um, contraceptive drugs are not hormones. I refuse to use the word hormone to apply to those medications because they're not identical to our own body's hormones. They don't have the same effect. They have actually, in some cases, quite different effects. So the examples I gave today is that progesterone potentially is quite good for bone mass, for immune regulation, for mood. And the progestin drugs, which are sometimes referred to as progesterone, but they're not, they have opposite effects. So they can have quite a negative effect on mood. Progestins can cause hair loss. That's another example. Whereas progesterone, our own hormone, is really good for hair growth. So a big part of the confusion, and that's why I said at the beginning, I think 60 years of birth control is what has really set us back and caused a lot of confusion as we've been operating under this belief that this narrative, this false narrative that pill bleeds are periods, that contraceptive drugs are hormones, that this is all good enough for women. And none of that is true. We know now from the new recommendations that just came down in the UK, and I think here as well, stating there is no reason to bleed monthly on hormonal birth control. That's always been the case. That's not a new finding. The, 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 the way the pill works is to induce a essentially chemical menopause to shut down everything and then give these contraceptive drugs that depending on the dosing of them can induce a withdrawal bleed but there's no reason to do that from a health perspective and so I feel like this whole idea that you can regulate periods with the pill has just fallen away like it's a very emperor's new clothes situation it's like okay everyone has to look at that and say that was never a thing. <laughs> We've just had 50 years of doing that to girls and saying, take these drugs to regulate your periods, and it's not real. Mm. Did we just get too caught up in the idea that we could take some control over our fertility and our contraception and, and you know, the whole women's liberation? Do we, do we not stop to think about what the consequences might be? Uh, I think there's a lot of motivations, but I think a big part of it is a um, sort of a, a, a deep-seated misogyny and distrust of women, fear of women's bodies in our society and fear of how women's bodies are and this just, 
yeah, culture-wide, society-wide decision to kind of shut that all down and treat women's hormones as a liability and say, just take this drug to, as you say, control it or manage it. Mm. I think also that we haven't ever before allowed ourselves to understand our bodies on the level that we're allowing now because we're talking about it more because it's acceptable to ask questions all of a sudden. Whereas before we would go to our doctor and I'm not saying that our doctor's not, you know, doing the best job that they can, but we would never question our doctor Mm. 25 years ago. If that's what the doctor said we needed, that's just what we did. Or very few people question that, I should say. Whereas I think now there's so much awareness, there's so much discussion that all of a sudden we are questioning, you know, how we're feeling as a result of something like the oral contraceptive pill. Whereas once upon a time, we probably were told that there's nothing wrong with us. We're probably told, you're fine. That's not a side effect. It's not known to be a side effect. So just keep doing what I've told you to do. Whereas now we're going, I don't feel fine. There has to be a reason. It's not any similar to when we spoke to Mel with uh, the post... Post, what am I Breast to implants. So, yes. so we had an interview with um, Mel Ward on one of our podcasts a little while ago. You can go back to that episode. It was very interesting. And she had uh, breast implants and pretty much immediately she started feeling really awful. But it was years and years and years before she put two and two together. Well, and it was every testing from everything that she could look at. That's right. And but never the what are the implants doing to my body. Exactly. So she was the one eventually that did her research and worked that out and had them removed and pretty much instantly. Like if you look at the pictures of her before and after, mm. she looks like a completely different person. She was so swollen and puffy mm. that she she didn't look like the same person. So, I mean, the reality is if that can happen with implants, that can happen with anything that we're putting in our body and to think that we're not going to have a reaction or a response. I mean, the pill is bossy, right? It, that's, it's designed <laughs> to come and boss, it, boss us like around. <laughs> that's what it's supposed to do. This is the bit I'm like, you know, people are really shocked to learn, oh, my goodness, the pill's done this, this and this. It's like, yeah, that's what it does. It's supposed to turn everything off. It's not It's not a, a well, it is a problem, it's but a it's not subtle. a problem of the pill. That's right. just what it does. So, you know, this conversation, it's relatively new in the sense that we're openly talking about it and all of a sudden women are going, oh, hang on, me too, yeah. you know. Mm. What do you think about this idea that um, I guess if we're if you're on a contraceptive pill, especially from an early age, you miss out on that opportunity to see what your body is actually doing and to be able to tune in to whether there are things that are happening that might be a problem down the track or you're just masking that. Absolutely. So I call the period a monthly report card. I know lots of other clinicians, including Nat, you know, speak about that, the, the period, the menstrual cycle as a reflection of general health. And that is a mainstream view now as well. So I think it was the end of 2015, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists came out with a statement that are called ACOG or ACOG. They called the period, the menstrual cycle, a vital sign of health. And they say in that statement, recommendations for doctors, you should be asking your young women patients about their periods and encouraging them to track your cycles so you can learn about what's going on with their health. Now, unfortunately, I don't think that message is getting through because I don't think doctors are doing that. But I mean, yes, it's an early opportunity to potentially see if there's a problem. Keeping in mind, we were just saying a few minutes ago, actually, that teenagers can have, their cycles don't have to be spot on 28 days straight away. I mean, that's not expected at all. They have a, as women, as young women, we have a calibration phase with our menstrual cycle where it's learning, it's maturing. It takes 
12 years to do that. Wow, 12 years. So if you get your period at 13, it's not until essentially you're 25 that you are fully in the groove of your brain signaling your ovaries to ovulate and making enough progesterone and that's all happening. And just to bring it back to the pill again, I have to. Like if you give the pill to a teenager and you induce chemical menopause and you shut down that maturation process, she's going to have to resume that maturation process at some point when she comes off the pill eventually in her 30s. And that's why it's no surprise that after being on the pill for 15 years, since you were 14 years old, you can't ovulate every month. It's, yeah. it's really interesting to say it because I think a lot of people expect to come off the pill and find that their period mm-hmm. Is just there, especially just those been that, waiting. Yeah, <laughs> you know what shocks me because they've been led to believe that it's going to balance their hormones yeah. somehow, or that mm. it's going to regulate their cycle. Yeah. It's never been able to do that. No. Um, but the amount of women that I see will say, "Oh, I never had a period, so my doctor put me on the pill to regulate." my period. And then now I've come off and I still don't have a period. And it's exactly what you're saying. Well, you haven't been through that process. So now we've got to start. And how do we find that? And that can take a really long time for, you know, especially if you've been robbed of essential vitamins and minerals at the Mm. pill. We know the pill or, you know, that a lot of drugs do. Um, it's, it's you know, there's a bit of work that needs to happen, a bit of investigation into what's going on for you and it's going to vary from person to person as well. I don't know about you. I've had patients, I've talked to patients who in their 30s have never, I can work, we can work out, we can sketch out their whole life. They've never ovulated on their own. So wow. this might be someone who went on the pill at 13 for acne, mm. for example, for skin, never ovulated, came off you know, 12 months, couldn't get a period going, not that surprising, coming off, especially some of the contraceptive drugs are harder to come off than others. Then could, you know, panicked, underwent IVF or whatever, had a baby, which is great, you know, ovulated with that kind of help. But then maybe back on the pill or then, you know, then at this point sitting down with me, I'm like, okay, wow, you've, you've actually never done this. This signaling between the brain and the ovaries, this how the human body works, not just, not the, I refuse to say, you know, how the female body works. This is how the, hu- <laughs> the standard human body works like this. And you've never yet had an opportunity to do it. It's- I think also too, finding out that information. And if you had been on the pill all that time and you'd been having the pill bleeds, but they weren't actual periods, how robbed would you feel oh, totally. that you've been dealing with this period and in inverted commas and all the things that go along with the annoyance mm, of, yes. I'm going to say annoyance because it, it can be annoying. Fair you want to go swimming, you want to go to the beach, yes. oh, dealing with this. It wasn't even a real period. <laughs> didn't need to happen. Exactly. Didn't need a lot to happen. Of, a lot of women are really angry. Like mm. women were angry in response to that news that mm. you don't have to have a monthly pill bleed. They're like, what the heck? Yeah. And also some of the, a lot of young women that I speak to that kind of I interact with on social media, when they find out that these drugs have actually just shut down their hormones and they haven't had a chance you know, for their hormones to do anything, they're mad. Well, those mm. other things that the hormones are doing that you've pointed out, yeah. you know, bone density yeah. and muscle mass, did yes, you say? So, muscle mass. So it's in improving all these things in your body and setting you up for life. Yes. And you've robbed yourself of that opportunity. Yeah. I've never heard of that before. But the good news is that it's yeah. never actually too late to, you know, start to... Lucky. Well, you know, it takes time and effort. That's the hard part. And we don't... We're not living in a culture that necessarily wants to dedicate that time. I tell a story of... I think I've said on here before, I had a patient that had never had a period, um, had two um, children via IVF, but she'd also had an, a fairly... Um, bad car accident that had severed her pituitary. Oh. So she came to me 
And yeah. she'd said, I want to get my period back. And I said to her, you, really? Why did you choose me? Like, <laughs> I remember saying to her. Too hard, basket. I don't know, actually. Mm. You know, you've got actual, and structural damage is very different, right? And mm. we've had this conversation earlier that I would say that most women in the right circumstances, unless there's some structural problem, can get a period. Anyway, she's like, no, I think we can do it. And I was like, oh, gosh, okay, whatever. Like I did, I did what I would normally do and we looked at it as we normally would and she made some changes. She rang me around not even three months, I want to say two months after we'd started treatment and she rings me and she's, or she emailed me and she's like, I got my period on Christmas Day. And I was like, wait, what? What happened? She's like, I got my period. And I'm like, okay, you are actually one of those people that I could never have seen that happen for. If you can get your period back... I mean, and she did the work. That's mm. the thing. She did the work and she was happy to do the work and she really wanted it because she rec- recognised the value for her moving into menopause, which is something we should talk about. Mm. But, yeah, you know, I just look at that and go, you know what, anyone can get a period. <laughs> it's, you know, about, it's about doing the work. It's about trusting the body too. Yeah. That's one of the last lines in my book is for most people, yes, you know, a few maybe exceptions, but for yes, most, most women, it's going to happen. Mm. If you give the body what you need, what it needs and, you know, trust the process, it will happen. And it does take time too because there's a, there's a bit of um, usually like a three or four month lag time with mm. doing the right things and then getting rewarded by an ovulation. Absolutely. I love this idea though that the period is the reward because, yeah. I mean, I know from growing up and having dealt with having a period for 20-something years, I suppose now, I've never really looked at it as a gift <laughs> you know, it's always just been a burden. But I think that's the cultural part of the thing. And so flipping that idea on its head and, and saying, look, it, it is a gift because it means that it has these benefits to your body and your health and your well-being has to be balanced by the fact that your body's working well enough to have a decent menstrual cycle. Ov- ovulation is the gift. Mm. Ovulation is the reward. Ovulation is the main event of the cycle, the period is just an inevitable downstream effect of ovulation. And that's I, also why we should feel so good at ovulation too, exactly. you know. We should feel like we're ready to take it all on and, and achieve and conquer the world. That's how we're supposed to feel at that time. Look, we're going to take a quick break. We are talking to Lara Bryden, author of The Period Repair Manual and knower of so many good things about um, periods. <laughs> I feel so enlightened today. Uh, but we are going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and we're going to pick her brains more about menopause in particular. We are here with Lara Bryden having all of the good conversations about periods and <laughs> ovulation, all the things I love to talk about. I could sit here all day. You could. I know, right. Um, but just before we decided to break, we were leading into this discussion around menopause. And I know most women when they're 21 and in their prime uh-huh. and they're not thinking about that. They are if their mum's going through it, can I just say? Well, I guess they are. Because they're thinking... I don't want to end up crazy like she is as she goes through menopause. Like, oh, it's hot in here. Why is it so hot all of a sudden? (laughs) But there has to be more of a conversation around it because there is an inevitability about menopause. But is there? Well, is there? That's the thing. So we're talking about the pill as well. And Mm. and let's tie this together. How many women are on the pill that wouldn't even know that they're going through menopause? I think, and it's not a form of HRT. Well, it kind of is actually, I guess, but it's a—it's not even as a cheap form. It's not even as good as the HRT they give to menopausal women, right? So you know, rewind a little bit. Okay, so menopause is when your body 
stops making stops estrogen. Ovul- stops ovulating. Stops, stops ovulating. Stops ovulating. Yeah, okay. And so the reason that someone, a doctor, would say to you, you need to go on HRT is? Because you're having symptoms more yes. than anything. And because you're dropping off in estrogen. Yes. Losing estrogen and progesterone can cause symptoms. Yes. And it can... You know, big picture, lots of things considered. Potentially, it does accelerate the rate of bone loss a little bit. You know, I think it is certainly possible to go into menopause and all the way through a long, happy life without hormone replacement, just to be clear. But yes, menopause is a natural process. We stop ovulating. It's an adjustment. Okay, here's the thing. It's actually, and I'm very close to menopause myself, so I'm speaking about it in a different way now, I think. It's a remodeling of everything. So going into a different state of being in a lower, not zero, but a lower state of hormones remodels the brain, remodels the immune system. <laughs> and I think it's like second puberty, right? So we've, we know when teenagers are remodeling everything as their hormones kick in, we're like, okay, yeah, this is a time of change for them. We know that for the menopause transition, there can be a time, particularly with mood, not for everyone, but for some women, there can be a time of difficult sleeping or feeling, you know, less able to cope with stress. That's real. And there are things you can do about it, which I talk about in my book. But also it's good to know, it's really important to know that the research shows pretty clearly that 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 is not a permanent state. That's not how you are now. That's a transition. And for most women, they get to the other side of that a couple of years later. It's like, oh, I'm good now. I'm fine. (laughs) If not better. Yeah, if not better. Like their mood actually, there's this one study, Australian study, where they said postmenopausal women report feeling pretty fantastic. That was the quote they used. So it's it's not the end. It's, it's, you know, it's a change. It's a different, we move into a different hormonal state. And obviously I'm a big cheerleader for ovulation. So then there's the question, well, if ovulation is so great and we lose it at menopause, you know, how can that be a good thing? Okay. The way I see it is the fact that we have to, ovulation is great. And I consider every cycle that we're making our own hormones is like a monthly deposit into the long-term bank account of health. It builds metabolic reserve. It builds bone health. It's good for the brain. It, it's built us up to kind of carry us through those last three decades to menopause. So the fact that we do have to lose hormones at 50-ish should just make us more grateful that we ever had them before. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that in the clinic, uh, I love that you're talking about this because I don't treat a lot of menopause because I haven't lived it. And I feel like to speak to that is, I can't have the same empathy as I think that someone who has gone through it. Um, That said, we still treat it. And we, I mean, there's some amazing things that you can do to help to support your body. Um, But, you know, if you're supporting your body with something like HRT, I get confused at going, at what point do you stop? Because how do you know that you've actually transitioned? <laughs> and how does, you know, it's not really supporting the transition. It's just suspending you in a, in a state. Absolutely. Especially with regard to estrogen. Yeah. And that's probably a, maybe a topic for another podcast is maybe. how to use, like, there is a way to do it where it's, it's temporary and it's using just enough to ease the symptoms. And particularly coming in with progesterone first rather than estrogen. Progesterone being something that's real progesterone, what's called natural progesterone or micronized progesterone, is now actually available in Australia as a menopause treatment as of two years ago. It never used to be. But it's quite a different approach from just the estrogen-based hormone replacement. Well, you should have me back to talk about that at some point. Okay, you will. Um, I bailed you up before when you were doing your talk and I said, I have to talk to you about what my doctor said to me just recently. So I went to the doctor and I was just like, oh, you know, this, that, the other. And she said, oh... 
you know, when you start to go through menopause, come and see me and we'll go, we'll get you on some HRT. And I said, what? I don't, why would you say that straight away? And she said, well, because menopause is not a natural thing. It's not something that your body would have gone through because you would have probably been dead by now, like in the previous. (laughs) So your body's doing something it doesn't know what it's doing. Exactly. And I just looked at her and I went... I've got enough knowledge and nows to go, thank you for that information, but I'm not going to do but anything with it. what happens if you didn't? But this is my point. I thought she was just blanket. It's not natural. Look, got, Lara's got her hand up. Like, like, I'm like this. this. This is the kind of kid I was in school. Can yeah, you yeah. imagine? I'm like, the, I'm like the bookworm at the front of the class going, teacher, I want to answer that. Mm. Okay, two parts to that answer. First of all, this idea that, you know, the life expectancy of our ancestors was 40 years old and therefore, like, th- that actually is not... The case, the average life expectancy was lower, but a lot of that was childhood mortality. So there's pretty clear evidence that even ancestral peoples going way back, certain, you know, a good number of individuals did live through to the natural lifespan of a human, which is, you know, 70 or 80 or whatever it is. Now, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a biologist. But also, like you see those yeah. tribes that, you know, some yeah. of them haven't even been integrated into Western civilization. And there's the head. There's grandmas. There's grandma. Totally. And she's like 100. Okay, totally. So, because I'm a, my background actually is evolutionary biology. Oh, so, whenever, whenever there's something about this, that, okay, this is one of my favorite pieces of information. So, the question is how, why did menopause evolve? It's an active thing that we have that we go through. It's not just, oh, you're getting old and your ovaries just pooped out or, oh, oh your <laughs> ovaries ran out of eggs, which actually seems to not be the case. That piece of so-called information is is not... Okay, got an endless forever. supply. Okay, here's the thing, and I think I've got this right now. Mm. I've looked at the research a few times. Menopause has only evolved in a few species. So no other apes have it. The only other mammals that have it, this idea that you you know stop ovulating at a certain point, even though you could keep having babies, it's evolved in a couple of species of whales that have a particular social structure. And this is a bit, I don't know if this is more than you were listening no, for, but I good. find it super interesting. Yeah. So a good example is the orca or the killer whale. They have almost the identical lifespan to humans. So they live to about 80. Females undergo menopause at around 50, which is doesn't make sense. Like lots of other whales, you know, equivalent species would keep making babies past that age. You know, your body can still do it. What they seem to think is based on the social structure that menopause evolves when sons stay with their mothers. Wow. Which is super fascinating. So in killer whales, they have these pod structures. The adult sons stay with their mothers forever till the mother dies. And oh, they that go, sounds nice. They go off and, you know, make babies in other pods, but they come back and they live with their mother. And they seem to need their mother, their at, like grown-up mother, to look after them and help them find fish and stuff. So it's sort of this, and it works from a genetic perspective so that if you're, as a female, your offspring, your son... At that point, when he's making babies in other places that other pods are raising, it makes more sense for you to stop making your own babies and just look after your adult son. Mm. I don't oh, know. Wow. I know. What about? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. So we must be, which is weird because oh, this is totally off topic. Yeah. But, Fancy that. Well, human breast milk, the closest thing to human breast milk is whale milk. Interesting. Did you know that? Wow. I only know that because my mother researched it when I was really unwell as a child and needed to find an alternative to cow's so milk. she's going to go and find a whale for yeah. you. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And it is Isn't good to know that there is a, um, like an evolutionary reason yes. for it. Because when I got that information the other day, I just thought, it just that does not resonate with me no. 
one bit because we things that happen in our lives are not a mistake when you when you break it down to our biology we yeah. know that right yeah. you know that there is a reason that our bodies go through puberty and and the reason that your 8 year old son gets that massive testosterone boost that makes him a maniac for like a month mm-hmm. and then settles down like the, all these things happen in our bodies for a reason but so, even not from an evolution perspective just from a it's time to stop having babies perspective sure. and not being able to look after them mm. you know if you were to be 65 and fall pregnant i mean you should be looking after the grandkids correct. potentially in the so that in the tribe to, that function needs to well it also gives the message to women which is an important message is real it's based in biology that we're not done at menopause. Like, just because no, we're not making our roles babies, change. we are still healthy. We're not, you know, we're still functioning. We're still contributing to the society, to our families. This is a, a strategic thing that we've, you know, done for a biological reason. I think mm. also talking about menopause in a, again, the way we were talking about, you know, whether the pill is the right thing for everyone to go on and what ovulation means. I think it's so good to have the conversation because I, I know, I just think menopause has always been that thing that happens over there and you just sort of go, just look away while, <laughs> while mum or grandma or auntie or whatever is having her hot flush and everyone <laughs> doesn't know what to do about there's it. There's a stigma around it. There is. It's, it's, it's the intersection between misogyny and ageism. There's it's one of the last taboos, actually. So period, being female, having periods used to be taboo. It still is to some extent. Being older and female is a problem for our society. Mm. But that's going to change. That's why I'm speaking well, about definitely yeah. has, it. All, it is definitely changing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, um, well, like I said, they were having these conversations yeah. that we would never ever would have had. And even in the work that I'm doing with young women at the moment, the conversations that I'm able to have with these young women, I never had. And my mum would have considered herself to be quite progressive, you know, even though I didn't get everything I needed. And there were certainly things that weren't spoken about just because it was inappropriate Mm. to speak about it. Like, work that out for yourself. (laughs) She never said to me, you should probably get a mirror and have a look at what your anatomy looks like. Like, Mm. no way. That would probably be considered maybe sexual. And then that was not okay either. So it's just, it's really interesting, I think, we're really lucky to be living at this time, and our children especially, because we've got this information. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Can I get you to talk, Lara, about um, something you mentioned when you were giving your talk before, was that when you think about ovulation, we do it for about 35 to 40 years of regular ovulation. And by doing that, it actually prevents things happening in our body. Yeah. I was yeah. astonished when you went through the list of what that actually included. I'll, I'll give you the quote. So this is coming from a scientist and a clinician, a reproductive endocrinologist named Professor Geraldine Pryor, who I, spe- I quote in my book. It's really worth linking to some of her stuff in the show notes. I can give you a link later. Mm-hmm. She's published probably three decades worth of scientific papers about the benefits of progesterone which we only make after ovulation and just say again, the progestin drugs in the pill or other injections or implants are not the same hormone at all. They actually don't have these same benefits that I'm just about to say. So she made the statement, a rather bold statement that I've quoted numerous times, so I know it off by heart almost. She said 35 to 40 years of regular ovulation prevents osteoporosis, heart disease, dementia, and breast cancer. Helps to prevent. Sorry, it's not a Mm, guarantee, obviously, but it, but it it reduces the risk. Mm of those conditions, including breast cancer. And she's very clear about that because progesterone, our own natural progesterone that our body makes, is protective against breast cancer 
And that's another just example of the difference between the progestin drugs, contraceptive drugs, which increase the risk of breast cancer. My head's melting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Is, it's it a big. It's a, it's a big deal when you think about it, isn't it? Like it's, it's a, it's a big thing. I think um, too. Well, let's let's think about. This utopia of ovulation that we've created yeah. here. Yeah. I might use that. <laughs> Would you like? We should invite everyone to step into the house. The utopia. I call it my hashtag that I like is right the right to ovulate. <laughs> well, you can have ovulation utopia yeah. as well. Exactly. <laughs> I might use that one as well. But um, for a lot of women, it's not just all good. No, I mean this, and this is the reason that a lot of women are then prescribed onto um, birth control to to try and manage the symptoms that yes. can come. So, sure. I mean. If you're ovulating and you have really bad PMS or, you know, symptoms around that ovulation and period time, what can we do to kind of, I don't know, what what's the best approach in okay. a natural sense right, to okay. avoid the, I'm not going to say what, the synthetic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the look, drugs. Look, just, I mean, obviously I wrote a whole book on that very question, like period repair manual, which is how to deal with and redu- reduce or remove period symptoms without having to shut it all down with birth control. And we spoke a lot about that this morning. So depending on what it is, you know, there's different strategies. There's not one size fits all, not one diet where you can eat this way and you're going to have an easy period. It sort of, it very much depends on what the problem is. So we spoke a little bit this morning about a disease called endometriosis, which is very real and quite potentially quite serious. And you know, I take a different angle on that. It, it seems to be an inflammatory, potentially immune disease that is sort of managed by contraceptive drugs, but they don't do a very good job, you know. So there's actually a whole other way to potentially treat endometriosis, both naturally and hopefully future treatments that will then therefore not require shutting down the hormonal cycle to manage that. Mm. And then, you know, other things, PMS that came up in our morning conversation as well, that's also can, the mood symptoms leading up to the period can be quite intense. I realize that for some, it's it's not, it's the minority actually. It's only, I think it's less than 10% of women actually get significantly severe mood symptoms. I think a a greater percentage. It gets a lot of airplay though, doesn't it? It certainly does, doesn't it? Mm. So... I think a number of us will probably feel something like you feel a change leading up to your cycle. That's not the same as having, you know, debilitating mood symptoms. So fortunately, that's reasonably rare. But there, there are, you know, in my book, I, I take the angle of um, also reducing inflammation, stabilizing what's called the GABA receptors in the brain, um, reducing something called a histamine, which can quite improve PMS symptoms. So there's ways to, to do it. Um, when you talk be, about histamines, yes. is this the same sort of histamine as um, like if you get bitten by a wasp? Yeah. So the histamine, histamine is quite an interesting thing. Mm. You know, it's, um, it intersects many different systems. So it's part of the immune system, obviously. Um, the immune system makes it in, for, in response to allergies. Um, it's also a neurotransmitter, a stimulating neurotransmitter that creates a an very anxious feeling generally really? when you have excess, which sounds a lot like PMS, right? And also it interacts with the hormonal system. It's involved in the signaling for ovulation. It stimulates estrogen and is also stimulated by estrogen. So there's this real situation where it tracks estrogen. I think a lot of the symptoms that are blamed on estrogen probably are related to histamine. So that's a way in potentially for, you know, some of those symptoms that you're thinking the only, you know, this idea that the only thing I can do is take the pill. It's like, no, there's so many other things. And also there's so many other things 
existing, I would argue, natural treatments. And there's so many other things that surely medicine can come up with. Like one of the points <laughs> I make is it's 2019. Like, come on. The, like, you know, the, I think that the pill is still prescribed for all these things shows a startling lack of imagination by medical research. We're 60 years later and this is what we're prescribing. Yeah, because it's easy. I guess so. Yeah. I'm fascinated. I could just talk to you about the histamine <laughs> thing for ages. Yeah. One last thing, Lara, before we let you go, because we've pretty much had you all day. <laughs> Natalie has had you all day, so <laughs> you're going to need a, a Bex and a lie down shortly. Um, <laughs> but, but before we do let you go, let's just quickly talk about undereating yes. as an issue with women in particular and what effect that has on our lives. Yes. Mm. Okay, and this goes back to my evolutionary biology background. It all makes sense. So losing your period because you're under-eating food or under-eating carbs is a normal response to that situation. Mm. It's not good because it robs you of the hormones you need. So we know that being what's called amenorrheic, like having no ovulations, no cycles in the long term is bad for bone density. We know that for sure. I'd say it's bad for brain and muscles and everything else we've spoken about. And one of the things that's happening is because there's two, basically two main reasons to lose your period. There's actually multiple, but let's, for the sake of argument, there's kind of two main ones. Mm-hmm. One is called PCOS, which is a situation of high male hormones, lack of ovulation, can cause very irregular periods. It's should be diagnosed based on the presence of high male hormones and, you know, very specific. Unfortunately, it's often diagnosed on the base of, basis of an ultrasound showing po- so-called polycystic ovaries, which means nothing because they're not cysts, they're just eggs, which are normal for the ovary. And the problem, the reason it relates to this conversation about under-eating is it's very possible to be in the second reason for losing your period, which is under-eating, mm. And which is actually something called hypothalamic amenorrhea, but to be mistakenly told you have PCOS based on this ultrasound finding, which is not a correct way to diagnose at all. So then picture this, you've got a young woman who's not eating enough. Her doctor does an ultrasound and says, okay, you've got this disease. You know, So then you Google PCOS and then you find out, oh, a low carb diet is actually mm-hmm. this treatment mm-hmm. for PCOS supposedly. I mean, there's some truth in that maybe for certain types of PCOS, but for the sake of this young woman, she reads that and she's like, oh, I'm cutting all carbs. And she then convinces her brain even more to not have a period because there's not enough food coming in. She's never going to see a period. (laughs) So I'm seeing that it's more happening in the last five years. I think because low carbon keto is more popular, I am seeing a lot, I would say a lot of young women I say it's more likely to happen in the 20s, which kind of makes sense because you're, I don't know, yeah. you're, you know, it's when your body's calibrating, it's yep. when your body's more sensitive to lack of food supply and the body's like, we're starving. You know, even if you're not starving, even if you're in the case of low carb, even if you are arguably having fats and protein and you're trying to get enough calories. Carbs are important in this situation. It, there is some evidence and I know if any low carb People are listening. They're gonna. They're gonna, they're gonna have. They're gonna have some counter arguments against this, which I've. I, I'm happy to take on Twitter. I have this conversation at least <laughs> twice a week with low carb people on Twitter. But yes, there is some evidence that the for women, which are human standard humans, the signaling from the brain that gives something a hormone called LH that speaks to the ovaries about ovulation is 
affected by low carb specifically and low insulin specifically. So there's definitely something very real happening. It's not every woman. And I think it's because genetically we're different. You know, mm-hmm. some women are have ancestors that could still make babies in the face of a famine. And some women did not. I mean, some women are just more, their reproductive system is calibrated in a way that when there isn't enough food, they stop ovulating. That's right. So I always learned that the people that did continue, well, not continue, that actually started ovulating were those that had true PCOS yes. in time of famine. So yes. everyone has a role. Yes. It's so <laughs> arguably, PCOS is arguably genetic adaptation to yes. famine. Yeah. 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 You're able to ovulate with a lower food supply, with a lower carb supply. Mm. It's fascinating, yeah. isn't and then, it? And then having too much carbs and too much sugar with that calibration is actually a real problem because that can do the opposite and make the ovaries basically behave kind of badly producing yes. too much testosterone. Yeah. yeah. Tell you what, in the last few episodes, we have covered some great get back to basic genetic <laughs> stuff, haven't yeah. we? Well, we did one about male begins. hormones and, and mm. um, about how so much is sorted out in utero yes. with, you know, determining gender and brain mm. and all of the things that are going on. Mm. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Lara Bryden, thank you so much for being part of the Wellness Collective today. Thank you. And where can people find you and your book? Yep, my book is Period Repair Manual in Australia. It's published by Pam McMillan. It's in most shops, kind of online stores, Amazon, iTunes, mm-hmm. all the usual. And my blog is larabryden.com, where I cover a lot of topics. And all my social media is at Lara Bryden, so I'm easy to find. Oh, that's easy. So yeah. easy to find. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Good job. Very well organised from you. Ours yeah. is all over the place and convoluted. Ah, <laughs> uh, excuse me. And that's why I take great pride in my social handles (laughs) and my love handles and all of the handles. (laughs) I just want to read one review. Okay, one review. Quickly before we go, because we love it when you leave reviews. Do you know, I actually went to do a, a thing on Insta stories the other day and I was like, Guys, we're we at that time we were like 198 reviews. I'm like, can two people just go and Absolutely. do it to get us to 200? Totally. If um, you're listening to this now, please go and have a look and just yes. do a review for us, okay? Yes. But then my husband saw I'd done this and he goes, "Are you being that now? <laughs> Doing an Insta story?" And I went, "Oh, and I got all embarrassed and then deleted it." Oh, come oh. on. <laughs> Wow. Give us a review. Okay, I had to read this one. This is excellent. Mm. So much fun listening to these well women. It's inspiring, fun and informative. Helps me be accountable to my wellness by learning the tools to take control of it. Love it, but the next review actually says, is it just says, great info, love it, and that's by Jason the Cow. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Jason. I'm so mm. glad you got your hooves out and you could type that up for us. It's very, very oh, nice of you to thanks. take a moment out of your milky day. <laughs> well, there's a male cow, so probably <laughs> yeah, not Jason, producing a great deal of milk. He is possibly trying to find his mum so his mum stops going through, <laughs> and can transition no, through menopause. That's a, what he's off he's doing. He's not a whale. He's a cow. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining us on the Wellness Club. Collective. Until next time. Thank you, Lara. Until next time, we hope this episode has left you feeling happier, healthier, and and better. better.